21-2347, Thaler against Vidal. Mr. Abbott. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court, my name is Ryan Abbott, Counsel for Appellant Stephen Thaler. This case raises the novel legal issue of whether a patent can be obtained for an invention created by an artificial intelligence in the absence of a traditional human inventor, what is today called an AI-generated invention. The Patent Office says no, but that decision is at odds with the plain language and purpose of the Patent Act. Nothing in the Act says that only a natural person can be an inventor. The Act uses terms for inventors that can refer to natural persons, but not terms that must refer to natural persons. For example, the Patent Office opened its rejection of Dr. Thaler's patents on the basis that terms like whoever suggest a natural person, but that's it, suggestions. In fact, even within the Patent Act, Section 271 uses the term whoever in the context of infringement to refer to artificial as well as natural persons. By contrast, there's a very explicit prohibition in the Patent Act standing in the way of the Office's interpretation, namely Section 103, which states that patentability shall not be negated by the manner in which the invention was made. But that's exactly what the Patent Office is doing here, prohibiting an otherwise patentable invention from protection, simply because... What about the definition of inventor, which is defined by the Patent Act as an individual or individuals collectively? Sure. Well, to properly understand the meaning of inventor in this context requires considering the purpose and context of the Act. No, actually, I would like you to just consider the language of the Act. How can AI be an individual? Well, an individual can refer to a number of things, a natural person, a company, an animal, a machine, an artificial person. The Supreme Court recently interpreted the meaning of individual... Well, actually, an individual can't be a company, and haven't we actually held that quite clearly? Haven't we said corporations cannot be inventors? Well, the Supreme Court, at least in Clinton v. New York, found that an individual could include a company. There are two cases from this court in which the court stated an inventor was a natural person, University of Utah v. Max Planck and Beach Aircraft v. Edo Corp. But there are two things I think are important to bear in mind with those decisions. First, those decisions were with respect to corporate inventorship, and corporate inventorship is different than AI inventorship. With a company, it is literally composed of natural persons and can only act through natural persons. So if a company like IBM could say they invented something, there's a risk you leave a human inventor off of her patent. That's not the case here where the AI acted autonomously from any inventive skill on behalf of the person. Also, even in those cases, as I read them, they involve complex procedural matters, and neither party was arguing that a state or a corporation could be an inventor. So even in that context, I think those statements were dicta. Can I ask you a language question whose precise bearing I'm not sure of? When I go to some dictionaries with at least only one exception that I can find, what I find in definitions of artificial intelligence is that it is the capability of a machine, so that it would be the counterpart to saying 
I personally have an intelligence, and that intelligence was used to invent something. Nevertheless, the inventor would not be my intelligence. It would be this physical thing, person, that has the intelligence. Only, and, and, and my general sense has been and that the term artificial intelligence is nearly always, and in some dictionaries only, used to refer to the capability, not to the machine that has it. Um, that would make extremely odd, even just for that reason alone, to say, um, to, to indulge the usage that you have to indulge, in which you say an AI, the AI, as a unit that could be an inventor. It seems like a different kind of thing from, from um, the intelligence that I, for example, might exercise. My intelligence would not be the inventor. Sure, Your Honor. Well, I would submit that in ordinary usage, an artificial intelligence can refer to an inventive entity. In this particular case, you know, the AI is a software program operating on a physical machine. So if the court was more comfortable thinking about it as a machine was the inventive entity, I think that those two terms are used here, could be used here synonymously. Unless the, so unless the software was placed on, say, um, a thousand different machines, which one would be the inventor? Well, this is not a case involving a distributed software program. Um, now, if, if what I, I guess what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that this whole notion of taking artificial intelligence, who's ordinary, maybe not you know as of yesterday or the week before yesterday, um, was referring to a capability and not a physical thing with the capability, makes it even odder to think of saying that the inventor is what you call an artificial intelligence. An inventor would not even be a human intelligence. It would be the human with it. As we were using the term, Your Honor, artificial intelligence was the way that we described a distinct inventive entity that is a software program operating, that is one software program operating on one specific physical computer. Um, and we used artificial intelligence in its meaning as referring to an individual. If, again, the idea of a machine being the inventive entity were more comfortable language, I think they would be synonymous here. Okay. Um, Can you return to the statutory language? I, I just want to make sure I understand your position on that, sure. where, where the chief judge started you. The, the statute expressly defines inventor as an individual or individuals. And we know from the Supreme Court decision in Muhammad that, at least in normal, ordinary statutory usage, that's a natural person, unless, I guess, if there's some contrary indication. What Do you agree with that analysis? And if so, uh, are there indications to the contrary somewhere in the Patent Act? Yes, there are, Your Honor. And I think the Supreme Court was very careful in Muhammad to say, you know, here it means individual by the language, the context, and the purpose of the act. It all makes sense. In other statutes, it hasn't. And I think here the indication that an individual means something broader is the fact that this, the Patent Act has been routinely interpreted 
to give terms broad meaning in a way that promotes innovation. So under Diamond v. Chakravarty, for example, the Supreme Court held denying inventions in areas not contemplated by Congress would frustrate the purposes of patent law. Let me, let me just and interrupt that, you just for, for a second, because my understanding is this definition of inventor was added in the AIA, so it's only about, what, 10, 11 years old. Is that correct? And, and can you point to cases subsequent to the adoption of that statutory definition uh, that would somehow be indicative of what you're arguing? Sure. Uh, that is correct. And I'm not aware of any, I'm not aware of any case that has interpreted that definition in any way since that case. Um, you know, the, the, the two rules of statutory construction that I would argue requires the uh, understanding that an inventor be an inventive entity broadly here are, you know, Yates v. United States and King v. Burwell, which are Supreme Court cases explaining how context and purpose are critical for statutory interpretation, particularly in a term like invent, in individual, which can mean different things. In Yates, the Supreme Court held that a fish was not a tangible object for purposes of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. And literally, of course, a fish is a tangible object. But the act was concerned with destruction of corporate financial records, and the term tangible object needed to be interpreted with that in mind. In King v. Burwell, the court held that a health exchange established by a state included a federally established exchange. And the reason for that holding was that it would have been inconsistent with congressional intent to exclusively rely on a literal interpretation. So applying the ruling King here, Congress passed the Patent Act to encourage innovation, not to inhibit it. If at all possible, the act has to be interpreted in a way that is consistent with the former and that avoids the latter. And, and so here, individual needs a broader meaning as an inventor. How, how, how do you think we should make a judgment if we got to it about the question whether um, allowing an inventor to include um, either a piece of software or a machine with a piece of software resident on it would um, advance or um, uh, run counter to the purposes of the Patent Act? Well, I, I think that the the overall... it, may be, it, may, it may be self-evident to you. I, it, just to use language a little bit carefully, it sure isn't self-evident to me that this policy argument um, favors sure. you. And you know, the patent office attempts to frame this as a policy argument, but I, I would I say you, that this I thought, I'm sorry, you frame it as a policy point. Fair enough, Your Honor. And what I suppose I mean to say is that it's policy relevant to the purpose of the act and to how it should be interpreted statutorily. You know, essentially, the Patent Act is agnostic as to how an invention is generated. And if we are moving into a research paradigm in which drug companies will have AI find and repurpose new drugs instead of going to teams of pharmacologists, that sort of behavior is something that we want to encourage under the act. If if Pfizer can make an antibody to treat COVID from a supercomputer instead of a group of people, that's inventive activity. And if you don't allow a patent on that, it A says to companies, you can't use machines in research and development in this manner if you care about patents. Or it says you can own the output as a trade secret, but you can never disclose it or you'll lose your intellectual property rights. And as the Patent Act is designed to incentivize innovation, promote disclosure of, of trade secrets, and commercialization of new products like new drugs that require patents to make these very significant R&D investments, all of that would be frustrated under the Patent Office's interpretation. 
That's not something that they ever engage with, which is one reason why Skidmore deference isn't due to them. Um, you know, together with the fact that their proposed interpretation runs squarely afoul of things like Section 103. Um, you, you're into your rebuttal. You can continue or you can save this. I'll save with time for rebuttal. Thank okay. you, Your Honor. Thank you. Mr. Bargan? Yes. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. In 2011, nearly a decade ago, and only a decade ago, Congress amended the Patent Act to explicitly define the term inventor as an individual and then expressly bolstered that definition by using personal pronouns to define that individual. Gendered personal pronouns. Excuse me, Your Honor. Gendered personal pronouns. Gendered personal pronouns, correct. Himself and herself. The district court correctly held through a comprehensive written opinion that a collection of source code, as my colleague has described Davis here, did not fit within the plain meaning of the statutory term individual, as the Supreme Court defined it in Mohammed as a human being. Because, time and again, the Supreme Court and this court have held that this plain meaning analysis ends any exercise in statutory construction, regardless of the preferred policy outcome that my colleague uh, urges on this court here, whether laudable or not, this court should affirm. And I will be very brief in going through uh, our statutory analysis for your honors. In the AIA, as Judge Stark noted during my, his colloquy with my colleague, Section, two, Section 100F was added to the Patent Act, and that states that an inventor is, quote, the individual, or if a joint invention, the individuals collectively, who invented or discovered the subject matter of the invention. In Muhammad, the Supreme Court said that the plain meaning of the defin the plain statutory definition of the term individual is a human being. And it used three indicia to get to that result. One, the, the dictionary definition of individual when used as a noun, as it is here in the Patent Act. Second, normal parlance. That is, people do not refer to a company as an individual, nor does it refer to a collection of source code, a software program as an individual. And also, the Dictionary Act in Title I of the Code, which defines individual as different from a company or other entities. All three of those initial... I'm sorry, I don't have that in front of me. Is that a definition of person? That is the definition of person. And individual is one of the, is one of the items in the list. Correct. Okay, it is different it. from an entity in that respect, Your Honor. It is thus no surprise that this court on two occasions, uh, in Edo and Max Planck, defined an inventor to be a, a natural person. The burden to overcome that plain language is not simply based on what one perceives as the policy genesis of a particular statute. It is, as the Supreme Court held in Muhammad, there must be some textual context. There must be some written explicit language that says otherwise. And here, not only do we not have that other statutory language, we have the direct opposite which is, as we referenced in, uh, in my opening, the gendered pronouns that only bolster the, the need to define individual as a human being. My colleague references in this respect 35 United States Code Section 103 and the final sentence of that provision, which states the patentability should not be negated by the manner in which the invention was made. The Supreme Court in Graham against John Deere, nearly 50 years ago or so uh, now, has said that that provision, that one sentence, applies only to the part of patentability that is referenced in Section 103. 
In fact, I'll quote from the Supreme Court's decision. The second sentence states that patentability as to this requirement is not to be negated by the manner in which this invention was made. That is, it is immaterial whether it resulted from long toil and experimentation or from a flash of genius. And more recently in Honeywell International 2017, decisions from this court, this court held that the very purpose of that sentence is to uh, avoid problems from routine experimentation being used to preclude patentability. All of these statutory indicia, Your Honor, lead to the conclusion that there is only one plain language definition of the term inventor, and that is of a human being, and that Davis, who, which is not a, uh, a human being, does not qualify as an inventor. And for that reason, the PTO correctly denied uh, Dr. Thaler's petition to say otherwise, and the district court correctly affirmed that conclusion under the Administrative Procedures Act. Can, can I ask you a question about um, something I think you say in your brief that um, for some of the kind of situations that um, Mr. Abbott was referring to, namely a scientist running a supercomputer where it's only the supercomputer that comes up with you know a particular extremely complicated antibody structure that I think you say, well, it's possible that that scientist, having programmed the computer, could be an inventor. Can, I, I realize we're not um, here to discuss, um, you know, to, to resolve that question, but can you elaborate a little bit on what the issues would be um, if that scientist were to claim, um, you know, the particular antibody result of a software program that um, he or she set to run on the on the computer? I, I sure can, Your Honor. I, well, I guess I should say I, should sure, I can sure try. Um, and, and I think that is because both legally and pragmatically, that question raises a sort of Pandora's box of issues. From, from the legal perspective, it is true that the USPTO's petition decisions below said that under the facts of this Case. That is, the facts as Dr. Thaler presented them to the USPTO below, Dr. Thaler had no involvement whatsoever in the conception of the invention here. And so, as an administrative procedure, I case... Was that, was that stipulated or actually decided it was, by the agency? That was the upshot of Dr. Thaler's argument, and that was the premise okay. of the USPTO's decisions. And of course, as an APA action... That's that different is, from a finding of fact independently made. That is absolutely okay. correct. Correct. And uh, that, is the, that is the set of circumstances or facts on which the USPTO decided this petition and then the district court decided this case. And under that set of facts, there is no doubt that there is no patent ability of this device, uh, of, sorry, of this subject matter by Davis here. If, however, as Your Honor posited, by Gambus or by Davis? By Davis. Okay. The, the, the creative collective machine or, so, or source code. If, however, the circumstances were slightly different than they are presented here, and Dr. Thaler could say that he participated in some way in creating this subject matter and listed himself as the inventor, the PTO said that may, under certain circumstances, be a different story. That's not the case here, but it may be a different story. 
Well, counsel, along those lines, if, if I program, if I actually write the code that programs the computer that has it do some sort of, for example, genetic sequencing, um, aren't I then the inventor? I, the programmer, not the program, but the programmer, aren't I then the, the inventor of whatever it was that I conceived of writing software code to do? Under those, under those limited circumstances, Your Honor, I, I think that you may be. Uh, the inventor of uh, of that, or at least an inventor of that uh, of that subject matter. Well, when you say an inventor, I wouldn't coexist. There wouldn't be two of us, me and the program I wrote. Right? It would just be me. As a as a legal matter, yes, Your Honor, that's correct. Because the the definition of joint inventor is equally tied to the term individual, as is a singular inventor. That's correct. But from a, but going back to your question, Judge Toronto, the, the panoply of, uh, pragmatic issues that would, that, that they, that, excuse me, that that might raise are almost innumerable. That is, when there's an inventorship challenge, perhaps after right, a patent right, issue. Just, just, sure. I guess I just want to say, say this. To some extent, I thought that, that your presentation of this point, abbreviated, of course, in your brief was made was was um, offered as a kind of comfort uh, to say that there are innumerable panoply of innumerable problems reduces the comfort somewhat. Well, I I I, I don't want to reduce any comfort whatsoever <laughs> under any circumstances. Um, but what I what I am what I am referencing in that respect is that as the Supreme Court has said repeatedly, most recently in Kimball. That is, when there are these types of pragmatic issues that would arise from a particular statutory construction, such as how do you depose somebody like Davis in an inventorship challenge down the road, those are the types of questions that Congress is designed to tackle and determine under what circumstances this kind of rubric, an artificial intelligence machine being an inventor, can go forward. And thus, my colleague's use of the statutory purpose of this, uh, of the Patent Act being innovation, is slightly simplistic, I would argue, because it may be that the Patent Act is designed to create invention, uh, innovation, but one person's innovation is another person's step backwards. And how we uh, administer or implement a system in which an, an artificial intelligence machine can be an inventor uh, is difficult, and that is uh, the subject matter that Congress is designed uh, to deal with. Unless there are any other questions, Your Honor, I'm more than happy to cede my time. Okay. I thank the Court for its time. Thank you, Mr. Barkin. Okay, Mr. Abbott, you have three minutes, I think. We'll thank you, Your Honor. Three. I'd like to, to briefly touch on this question about whether a programmer could be an inventor, right, which here is not the case as an undisputed factual matter, although not a finding of fact per se. And in some cases, it may be that a programmer is indeed an inventor. If you program an AI to find a antibody that treats COVID-19, that might do it. But some of the machine learning algorithms used by companies in materials engineering or in drug discovery are programmed by thousands of people spread over time and space. And the people using the programs may not be using them for a specific understood um, reason that came, I'm sorry, I didn't say that well. You know, for example, a programmer may be designing a machine learning algorithm to optimize industrial components, 
and some other group of people may use that to optimize the structure of a brake pad. You know, in that case, the many people designing the original program may not have any idea of the claims that are coming out of the machine or the specific problem that's being used to solve. None of those people will have exhibited any inventive skill with respect to the actual claimed invention and thus under U.S. law could not qualify as inventors. Um, you know, I, I take Mr. Berrigan's point uh, that, you know, policy issues are for Congress. On the other hand, Congress has already passed the Patent Act with a well-understood purpose that it is broadly intended to promote innovation, disclosure of trade secrets, and commercializations of new products. And Congress has already said we should be agnostic about the way that these inventions are made. Now, whatever the court decides, Congress may decide down the road, you know, we like AI inventors, we don't. They change the Patent Act, that's their prerogative. But Congress has already passed an act that has been interpreted very broadly by the Supreme Court to promote these purposes. And so we believe Dr. Thaler in this matter, you know, should have individual um, subject to a broad definition that captures what is really socially very beneficial sorts of innovation. Um, Mr. Abbott, I on, might... on, on, on Section 103, do you have any response to the uh, Patent Office's citation to the Graham versus Deere decision? And I might request that we submit some supplementary commentary on that as it's the first time that point was raised, but I, I think my off-the-cuff response would be this. Section 103 was indeed enacted to deal with the flash of genius problem, but it was a broader, you know, in my understanding, it is a broader term that he is giving it credit for. You know, Congress is basically saying, we don't want to open the Pandora's box of how something is made, in part because we don't care, Right. There's a system, we believe economically, it underproduces innovation without patent law. We want patent law to get more socially valuable innovation. And if it comes from a person, a robot, or a room full of monkeys, not that we're alleging a monkey should be an inventor, so forget that analogy. All we really want is the system to produce more innovation, and that's exactly what would happen here, understanding an individual as an inventive entity. By the way, do, do you happen to know, do the, um, the you know, um, the mythic monkeys who type out Shakespeare get to be copyright holders. Um, well, I, I see I'm past my time, so if I... <laughs> okay, thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay, thanks to, uh, uh, thanks to both, um, both parties. The case is submitted. Thank, thank you. you. Mr. Huffman, can you hear me? Yes. 
Not on the screen. Yes, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. And can you see um, both Judge Toronto and Judge Stark in person and Chief Judge Moore via video? Um, yes. Are you certain? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. Are you having any difficulty visually or hearing? There's a light, is there a lighting question on Chief because Judge Moore? Uh, there's a little bit of a there's a bit of an echo, but I can hear you for the most part. If you have an echo, you have to turn off. Uh, if you have live streaming of our arguments on, you have to turn that off and just pivot to Zoom. No, nope, I, I don't have that on. Is that a little better, Mister? 